Welcome to Climate Talks, the podcast that follows global climate negotiations and, this year, the journey to COP27. Climate Talks is produced by Melbourne Climate Futures and the Melbourne Centre for Cities at the University of Melbourne. I'm your host, Cathy Oak, and I'm joined by my fellow co-host, Jackie Peel. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which this podcast was produced. I pay respects to the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We invite our listeners to take a moment to reflect and acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which you live. Welcome listeners, it's Jackie. With our guests today, Cathy and I will be asking about hopes and expectations for COP27, given that this is the episode just prior to the conference. Before turning to our guests, Cathy, let's talk briefly about the latest on the developments on COP27. Cathy, we're drawing closer to the start of COP27. We're beginning to get a better understanding of some of the key issues that are going to be on the agenda. The Egyptian presidency is really framing this as an implementation COP as opposed to the ambition COP that we saw in Glasgow last year. And we're pretty sure we're going to see issues featuring like adaptation, the global finance goal and mobilising greater finance and loss and damage, as well as that old favourite, mitigation ambition. We just had the pre-COP meeting held in Kinshasa in Democratic Republic of the Congo at the beginning of October. And the reporting back from delegations attending was that that meeting was about as positive as could have been hoped, given the significant geopolitical headwinds that we have heading into the COP. So is loss and damage definitely going to be on the agenda for negotiations then? Look, it's really hard to find it written in black and white, but Mm. at this stage there's certainly high confidence that it will be on the agenda, which will be a significant win for small island developing states, including our neighbouring countries in the Pacific. Indeed, I think loss and damage is really front of mind for many countries at the moment, just given the amount of extreme weather events we're seeing. And that's not just affecting developing countries like the devastation in Pakistan, for example, but also countries like the US, where we've seen Hurricane Ian tear across Florida and more flooding, of course, here in Australia. So apart from the negotiating agenda, it looks like logistical issues are also in the mind of many of those going or trying to get to COP27, particularly access to accreditation or badges to attend the so-called blue zone of COP27 and the price and availability of accommodation in Sharm el-Sheikh. Yes, uh, I think everybody is complaining about the travel and accommodation costs, which are very high. And of course, the concern is that these logistical hurdles are going to mean that less people can go and particularly that a diverse range of civil society actors won't be able to attend, limiting their opportunities to join important meetings or advocacy moments with the countries that are there in the delegations. There was a recent Guardian newspaper article, Cathy, I don't know if you saw it, that was talking about African climate activists, in particular youth activists, that have faced a lot of difficulties getting accreditation for the COP and the funding to be able to stay in Sharm el-Sheikh, which is basically a resort town on the Red Sea. Yeah, it'd be a terrible situation if access to the African COP by African activists is limited. 
Yeah, look, I mean, we all understand that security is important at these major events and like previous COP hosts, the Egyptian government is still trying to encourage the full and safe participation of as a diverse civil society present at COP. And on the Australian front, it's really encouraging to see the Australian delegation really making strong efforts this year to create places for Indigenous peoples representation as part of the delegation and plans for a much more inclusive and inviting pavilion, particularly if we compare (laughs) it to last year's uh, industry trade show. I like that. Sounds much better indeed. So let's introduce our guests, Jackie. We're very pleased to have joining us today Robin Eckersley, Professor in the Discipline of Political Science at the University of Melbourne, Omnia El Omrani, the COP27 President Envoy on Youth, and Catherine Bowen, the Deputy Director of Melbourne Climate Futures and Professor of Environment, Climate and Global Health, to give us their take on their best guess on the outcomes of COP27. Welcome back to the show, Robin. Pleased to be here, Jackie. Robin, of course, we're recording this episode just about three weeks out from COP. What are the hopes for this meeting, COP27? Well, Jackie, I'm afraid they're not high. This is a kind of interregnum COP in between the much-hyped and delayed Glasgow COP26 with very snappy rallying cry to keep 1.5 degrees alive here, it's mainly about implementation because the Paris rule book has now been negotiated, save for a few details on international carbon markets. So the focus is on stepping up national effort across all the different issues. And so the COP presidency is seeking to sort of have a balanced approach there. So it's sort of in between COP. Uh, next time round at Dubai, we'll be having the first global stock take, which will be a really big thing. So I feel like everyone's treading water a little bit. In terms of what's expected, now let me start with my hopes here. I think we'll be just dealing with the issues that never die. Mm. And those are the emissions gap, the production gap, that is the fossil fuel, the gap between planned fossil fuel projects and what we need to do. And of course, the climate finance pledge gap. And there's some new emerging issues as well. So if I could wish upon a star, I would hope that there'd be a lot more raising of ambition because soon the parties will have to start thinking about their next pledge for 2035. But right now we're way below where we need to be. We're tracking towards roughly 2.3 degrees, which is way too hot. So I would wish to see a lot more ramping up of ambition. The production gap, oh gosh, that's even more important. COP26 was quite important because it did mention Voldemort for the first time, that is fossil fuels. There was an agreement to phase down unabated coal and to remove inefficient fossil fuel subsidies, but that's not enough. So I'm hoping that there's some more effort there to get communiques on oil and gas as well across the board and for more countries to join these coalitions of the willing, powering past coal beyond oil and gas and even get behind the civil society push for a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. Wouldn't that be nice? On climate finance, we've mustered about $90,000 US billion. It should be 100, and that was supposed to be by 2020. So we're falling behind there. And then, of course, loss and damage is going to be on the agenda. Uh, at the last COP, there was an agreement to start a dialogue 
on loss and damage. And that dialogue is going to be managed by Jennifer Morgan, the former EDO of Greenpeace, and who, who will be acting as Germany's climate envoy. And this is kind of wide open. So there could be some exciting things happening there, but that will remain to be seen. So, Robin, if we if we move from a, a setting of wishing on a star to real politics, what you actually expect will be achieved at, at this COP as opposed to the hopes? What are the realistic ambitions? Well, I don't expect much movement on mitigation or finance. Loss and damage is not difficult to predict, given that both the US and the EU are not interested in setting up a new special finance mechanism, which is the most central part of the plea from the most climate vulnerable states on the climate front line. We must remember Egypt's major export is oil, as is Dubai, which is the COP following. And so looking at the COP president's request for a balanced approach They're including a reference to response measures. Now, that might mean nothing to viewers, but back in the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the OPEC countries inserted this provision to protect their oil export interests against climate policies in other countries. So the fact that this is included in the COP president's balanced approach does not fill me with hope. But of course, we all know the Ukraine war has changed the game in Europe and the rest of the world because we've got rising energy prices. The EU's emissions are up by 20% on last year, which is kind of understandable, but very sad at the same time. Germany's importing coal, it's building new kit out to ports to receive oil and gas from non-Russian sources. We've seen the end of quantitative easing. It's like the big printing of money party is over and states are facing huge debt, which means their appetite for kicking in more money for any purpose is not going to be very high. The British government under Liz Truss has completely dropped the ball after the vigorous advocacy at COP26. And most importantly, the oasis of cooperation between the US and China has dried up after Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. So things are pretty gloomy, but there is a little bit of good news. And that is the US Inflation Reduction Act was passed. It's a much watered down version, but it holds out some hope that President Biden might get somewhere near their pledge of reducing emissions by 50 to 52% by 2030. The downside is we've got the midterm November elections coming up and Nate Cohen from the New York Times is predicting a Republican take back of the House, which is not so good news. And if you look at the pledges of what I call the E2, the world's two biggest emitters, that's the US and China, they're way below what's required to hold warming to 1.5 degrees. China has agreed to peak its emissions no later than 2030, but it's not aiming for climate neutrality till 2060. And it's not starting its move away from coal to 2025. And it's phased down of foreign direct investment in fossil fuel projects. So this is way out of line with what we need to stay at 1.5. So I'm sorry, folks, the news is not very uplifting. Perhaps we should have started with the expectations and then moved back to the hopes. But I think it's really important for us to understand the settings going into this COP and what we can actually expect. Thanks very much for being with us today to share your expertise. You're welcome. Welcome to the show, Omnia. Yeah, thank you for having me. So could you 
Please first describe your role as the COP27 President Envoy on Youth and what it entails before and during COP27. Yes, so this is the first time in the history of COPs that there is um, a representative within the team of the presidency and a representative of the COP27 president, who is our uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs and um, for young people. Um, the reason behind that and to understand why, um, what my role does, which is basically the link between the needs, the perspectives and the solutions uh, that young people lead for climate change, whether it's adaptation, mitigation, loss and damage, human rights and health, which is my background, and the work of the presidency, which facilitates uh, the negotiation processes with the UNFCCC. And we believe in Egypt specifically in the role of youth as we are the most and we are disproportionately affected by climate change. This is the first thing. And at the same time, we understand the urgency and the seriousness that is needed and the inadequacy of the climate pledges and how we can drive such pledges into actions and implementation mechanisms. So that is why this year we, as the presidency, wanted to have a person that listens to the challenges that young people face when it comes to going to COP and how we can address that in a specific and effective way. And at the same time, how can we mainstream and integrate their solutions and their demands into the negotiation process? It leads quite nicely onto my next question. I mean, and congratulations for being the first of this youth envoy. It's really quite exciting development and hopefully it continues for following COPs. But to continue on from your response, you know, with COP27 is this month, it's very shortly upon us. And as usual, a lot of people have a lot of ambition and hope for the outcomes of the climate conference. So could you tell us about the latest opportunities for young people to engage in activities at COP27? Yes, so excited to share so many things. Uh, first of all, before COP, we have the Conference of Youth, uh, which takes place from the 2nd to the 4th of November uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh as well. We have over 1,000 registrations, young people coming from all over the world. The aim of COI is two things. The first is building the capacity of youth to understand not climate change because they are climate advocates and leaders, but the complexity of the climate negotiation processes and how to infiltrate it effectively with strong youth inputs. And this brings me to the second objective, which is creating the global youth statement, which is the youth official youth input on behalf of young people at COI and globally, because consultations were held around that statement for months and it will be finalized at COI. This statement is a, a document of youth uh, focused demands across all the different negotiation streams and every year it is presented to the presidency. What we want to do differently this COP is that we don't just want to welcome it, we want to integrate it and that is why for the first time on November 10th, which is the Youth and Future Generations Day, one of the official presidency thematic action days, we are going to have two roundtable discussions between negotiators ministers and youth representatives co-creating 
integrating and discussing the asks that will be put in the global use statement so that the negotiators will take these asks and integrate it in their work and in the negotiation rooms. This is called the Youth-Led Climate Forum. This was actually produced in the COP outcome of Glasgow. And we, as the presidency, are going to take that and implement it in COP27 so that it's not it's going to be the first of many youth-led climate forums. The last thing I also wanted to share for the first time ever, we're going to have a youth uh, pavilion, which is the space for two weeks that will be filled with youth-led events, youth-led workshops. We are going to invite the policymakers to our pavilion to discuss and see how we can work together as partners in the climate processes as well as the climate actions. It's not about COP, it's also about what happens after COP. And that is why right now or this week, I'm going to launch two things. The first is going to be a kit for youth to guide their participation at COP27, but also at all the future COPs. I already had the, exp the expertise of the UNFCCC uh, input into that, as well as um, the, and it's also based on the consultations that I held over the past two months from the one in Gabon, where we had over 100 African youth, to the one in New York, which we had also young people from all around the world during the sidelines of the General Assembly of the UN, as well as many virtual consultations. The second thing that I will be launched is a platform that is going to showcase the success stories and the inspiring actions of youth with their country, their name, their email, and their bio, as well as a description of their inspiring story that they want to share to the world in the momentum leading up to COP. We received over 146 Right now, we're going to post in batches, 50 each. And I'm very excited for you to check it out. It's at www.youth-cop.com, but it will still be launched at the end of the week. Well, congratulations again. And we'll make sure we put that website in the show notes for this podcast so listeners can follow along and read more information. That sounds like a great kit that's been created. So finally, I mean, you've obviously got a lot of activities that are focusing on implementation and action post-COP, but... You know, thinking about the substantive purpose of the COP meetings and from the perspective of the youth constituency that you're effectively representing, what do you think would make a successful meeting? So this year we, we refer to the COP as um, the African COP because it's the first time in six years that COP is here in Africa, but it's also the implementation COP because this is the last window we have before 2023 where the UN is going to assess whether countries progressed on their national climate plans or their nationally determined contributions or not. I think one, one of the other aims we have, which is we've seen, for example, in Glasgow, huge commitments made towards mitigation, which was very inspiring and powerful to see. But at the same time, it was not the same for adaptation and loss and damage. What would make a successful COP for me is bringing in issues like adaptation, loss and damage, but also climate justice and intergenerational equity at the forefront of COP. Also to transform the way that young people are participating at COP when it comes to assessing, and this is what we are doing now with Yongo, assessing where we are when it comes to youth participation and the quality of that, whether we were youth civil representatives or young negotiators, because they are both. And this year, 
I'm going to hold a session bringing in all the young negotiators to share their experience so that youth can also see the potential of being there. So a good cop would also be young people being there, speaking, sharing their demands, their asks, meeting their policymakers, and then after COP, following up on tangible outcomes so that at COP28, it will be about showcasing the accomplishments that were made in the year between this COP and the next COP. Thank you so much for joining us, Omnia, and good luck with everything in the next couple of weeks. Thank you very much for having me. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks, Jackie. Lovely to be here. Catherine, you're going to be attending this year's COP on behalf of Melbourne Climate Futures. What are you going to Egypt for? What's the purpose of, of you going? Well, that's a good question because it is a long way away. So the main reason I'm going is because the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was really requested to bring its findings to this COP. So it's a wonderful opportunity for lead authors like myself to be part of the discussions with the delegates. So it's actually quite a powerful position that the IPCC has for this particular COP to communicate the high-level findings from our sixth assessment report to really try and encourage and convince policymakers of the need to urgently transform all of our sectors and it's an economy-wide approach. So the main reason I'm going is because of that mandate almost for IPCC involvement and while I'm there I'll also be taking part in other activities as well including within the World Health Organization's pavilion. We've put together a wonderful event that's beyond the health sector. So really, we know most of the health impacts of climate change will involve sectors beyond health. So how do we talk about health issues with our colleagues in the energy sector, in the agriculture sector, in the water sector, in the urban sector? So a couple of things I'll be doing there as well. Yeah, well, those sound like really good reasons for being there on the ground. What are you hoping and expecting from this year's COP? what it might achieve and if you've got any concerns about what it might achieve. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion around this COP and whether it's going to be a COP that will be remembered for making some big decisions. And I think most people, you know, the discussion is that it really won't be a substantial or significant COP in between what we had last year in Glasgow and then next year, which is a really important year as well, particularly around the stock take. There are some signs that things aren't going that well. We know in September when countries were submitting their revised nationally determined contributions that not many countries did revise them and those that did revise haven't really upped the ante in terms of their ambition. So that's not a great sign in the lead up to the COP. Um, We also obviously know the, the economic implications and the financial world that we're currently living within, particularly as we all emerge from the pandemic and the pressure on financial systems. I think that the argument of a green recovery from the pandemic hasn't really cut through, which is an enormous shame. I think we did have an opportunity to really talk about how we recover from the pandemic in a way that looks to renewable energy and really to reform the way we are designing our economies and to start to also talk about bigger picture issues like 
the wellbeing economy and really looking towards different indicators that don't just measure GDP, but also measure really fundamental components of how we work in our societies. So I think I've, I've deviated from your question, but that's just really what I think that we had an opportunity to do within the recovery from the pandemic and we really didn't grasp it. So it's not looking great. It's good that the topic of loss and damage is now seems to be on the agenda, which was ambiguous a couple of months ago. So that's, that's a massive step, in fact, for the COP. It's not been formally on the agenda like it is for this one. So that is really important. And it, this COP has been colloquially called the, the African COP, and it will, because of that, have a clear focus on adaptation as well. So There's a lot of important negotiations that should be occurring at the COP, particularly around finance. We know that the $100 billion commitment by 2020 was not achieved, and we know that there's a lot of pressure on countries to deliver substantial financial commitments. So I'm hoping that that negotiation particularly will be strong and and rigorous, this COP, but it's really hard to tell at the moment. I'm hoping that we'll have a nice surprise and, and we'll really see some good outputs, but yeah, it's really unclear. Well, let's hope that low expectations uh, delivers big uh, results or a surprise result anyway. Thanks for joining us today, Catherine, on the podcast. Thanks, Jackie. Thank you to our guests, Robin Eckersley, Omnia El Omrani and Catherine Bowen for joining us today. And to our listeners for tuning in to this penultimate episode of Season 2 of Climate Talks in the lead up to COP27. I'm your host, Cathy Oak. And I'm Jackie Peel. You've been listening to the Climate Talks podcast produced by Kaiser Lundbury, Greta Robinstone, Ben Chandler and Matthew Lovell. Thanks to Music for a Warming World for providing the show's music, taken from their album Only One Way to Head. We hope you can join us for our season's final episode next time to unpack the outcomes in Egypt. To stay up to date, subscribe to the Climate Talks podcast. You'll find more information about this episode and our guests in the show notes. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Network Cities and at MCF Uni Melb. Thanks for listening.